Well, today, church, if you turn to the uh, Gospel of Luke, we'll get started there. We're going to kind of bed down in the Gospel of Luke this morning and in several places there, but primarily in chapter 11 of Luke. So as you turn there, let me read you a couple of verses there from Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes out and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness that is in it, and we know that we cannot possibly plumb the depths of this in the next 40 minutes or so, God, even of these few verses, Father. So we thank you for the richness of it that you continue to educate us throughout our lives as we come back to Scripture we've read time and time again, that there's always new stuff for us to to unpack and for you to show us through your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that the church would be edified by the word this morning, God, that you would speak instead of me, and that we would all learn how to grow closer to you and more Christ-likeness. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather and to learn. Amen. This morning we need to talk about demons. Who's excited about that? You guys should be excited. This kind of spiritual realm stuff is is important. It's not something we can simply let slide by. Uh, This passage this morning is from a section that deals a lot with various demons or unclean spirits. And it begins earlier in chapter 11 of Luke where um, a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. And Jesus heals him, it says, with a word, because Jesus' healing is like that. He has authority over unclean spirits. And the reaction to that healing is twofold. There are some who praise Jesus and say, my gosh, who is this guy? Is this the king, um, the Messiah? And then there's the other part who say, well, he's clearly in league with Beelzebub, right? He's in league with the, the devil, with the king of, of bad spirits. And Jesus' response to them is one of simple logic and such grace. I mean, he, he gives the kind of house divided against itself, cannot stand, which of course is where Lincoln cribbed that from for his Senate race speech in 1858. <clears throat> the idea that the devil would work against himself is just plain silly, Jesus says. <clears throat> but we need to learn a little bit about demons before we can understand what they're doing and, and why. Um, I'm not going to go deep into demonology this morning. That would be a, a heavier load than I'm prepared to take right now. Um, but there are a few things we need to know about demons. And first and foremost, what it's important to know about them is that they are not the source of all evil in the world. Demons are not the source of all evil in the world. What is the source of all evil? Sin. Yeah. We don't get to blame demons for our mistakes, right? <clears throat> you can think of demons often more as um, they're instigators. They fan the flames. They, they push us toward the sins we're already inclined toward. And they do attack. <clears throat> but they're not the source of all evil in the world. Okay, so don't, don't get, blame them for everything. Where do they come from? Revelation 12 suggests they're, they're fallen angels brought down with, with Satan at the same time. They are the powers of the dark world. We just went through that great series from Pastor Matt on Ephesians 6 about the armor of God, where it says that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, guess what that is, church? So this is part of the purpose of the armor of God is to to prep us and prepare us and armor us up for this kind of, of warfare. We know that um, in James 2, uh, that uh, the demons know who Christ is. They believe in him, not in a saving kind of way, but they believe in his authority and power. James 2.19 says, you believe there is one God and you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. 
And Matthew 8, 29 shows us that they know that their end is going to be tortured in the fires with Satan. And they ask Jesus, have you come to send us to that end already? There in Matthew chapter 8. So they recognize his authority. But while they're on earth, while they're here, they have a goal. And that goal is to lie and deceive people away from God and towards Satan. And they do this in a number of ways. They, they lie and deceive. This is probably the most common way we see them messing with things. And I apologize, the smoke has really gotten to my throat this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us about their tendency to lie and deceive. 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us they help to spread false doctrine. We know they attack people. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 refers to the thorn in his flesh as a reminder from Satan. But we also know they can be really sweet. They can be really charming. They can be really persuasive. And that's how we see them first, right? When we see Satan in Genesis chapter 3, he doesn't threaten Eve, does he? He says, no, hey, hey God told you this thing, but that's not really true. In fact, I know something even better. And I would, I would love to share that with you. I would love for you to experience what it's really like to know everything. You're missing out, but I've, I've, I'd love to help you. That's the sweetness and the persuasiveness of the enemy. But regardless of all these tricks, we know that in the end, they are by definition enemies of God, and they are therefore by definition defeated right, by Christ. Colossians 2, Revelation, many other places leave no doubt about that. But they do mess around in the world, and, and this guy's messing around here in Luke chapter 11. But he, he departs, the spirit departs, this unclean spirit. And we have to ask why, why would he bother to leave if you're inhabiting somebody why not just stick around and make his life miserable? And there are two reasons that I can think of. The first reason I can think of is the gospel. That's the most clear-cut one, is that there's no room in a believer's heart for, an, for the enemy, for Satan, for a demon to take residence. <clears throat> However, there's no indication whatsoever in these three verses that this man that Jesus is talking about turned to follow God. So I think we can rule out that as the reason in this particular case. The other reason a, a, a demon might want to depart would be that this guy has become kind of unpalatable. It's become an unpleasant place to reside. And that could happen maybe for a number of reasons. We don't know what this guy was like beforehand, but presumably because he had an unclean spirit and because of his own sinfulness, he was probably inclined to all kinds of things, maybe debauchery or, or drunkenness or, or theft or violence or whatever it was. His life was afflicted. And, and something has changed to make that demon no longer want to reside there. So it's possible this guy has done some kind of self-improvement, has made himself a little bit less often attacking people or less often stealing things or less often getting drunk or whatever it is. This man has changed to some extent um, by his own effort. And so the demon says, well, shoot, I'm going to find somewhere else because demons are lazy. And I don't mean that in like a want to sit on the couch kind of way. I mean that in an efficient kind of way. They're going to find the path of least resistance, right? After all, there's not that many of them compared to the number of us in the world, and so they got a lot of work to do to try and defile God's creation. So they look for an easy way. This demon goes out, he can't find anything better. That's verse 24 there. It says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. So he's kind of wandering the desert, just desperate to find somewhere, some haven, some oasis he can find rest in. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And that is a particularly damning thing to hear from the lips of Jesus that this demon would say, I will return to my house. This man's still the best option, regardless of his self-improvement. The demon still has the key to the place. His name's still on the lease, whatever metaphor you want to use there. 
That alone shows us that this man that Jesus is talking about is not a believer. Because who has the deed to us, church? Right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And this is being written to a church that's deep into sexual immorality, but the point still stands perfectly here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20, he writes, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And in these verses, there is not just a sense of simple ownership, not just that we have constructed a building. We're to be more than just a collection of bricks and mortar or timber and drywall and carpet. We're supposed to be a temple because the Holy Spirit deserves more than a house, doesn't he? He deserves a temple. <clears throat> this man's temple, such as it is, is found neat and tidy in verse 25. It says, and when he comes, when the unclean spirit comes back, he finds it swept and put in order, which sounds great, right? I like clean. You like when your house is swept and put in order? I'm not super familiar with that because I have five kids, but um, there's a, I have some idea of what that might be like someday. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, this is where we have to turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, because it's a very distinct difference in addition that he provides to us an extra detail. Matthew, chapter 12, verse 44, you'll see the verse that corresponds with Verse 25 here in Luke 11. Luke 11, 25 says, When he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And Matthew 12, 44 says, When he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. And let me ask you, church, what good is a temple if it's left empty? It's supposed to be full of something, right? <clears throat> Temples are made for worship, not for decoration. And we don't have a lot on this continent, but if you go over to Europe and the Middle East and places, you can see some incredible temples and cathedrals and these buildings that have stood for hundreds and hundreds of years that are incredibly ornate and beautiful and intimidating. They are huge. They are enormous. And when you step up against them and walk through the doors, you are belittled. You are humbled. And that's intentional. They're supposed to make you feel small. Not so that you can feel like you're going to be crushed, but so that you realize the enormity of your God you're about to go in and worship. They're supposed to help you get into a sense of worship and a state of that mind before you go in. <clears throat> they're big and they're beautiful buildings, but they're not for gawking and taking tourist pictures of. They're for creating a sense of awe about your Lord. And it's supposed to be a, a fearful awe, but not an awful fright. That's a different thing. It's not to scare you. It's to put your mind in the right place in comparison to who God is. <clears throat> So we have to ask, do you, do you have awe and wonder for your body? Are you awed by housing the Holy Spirit? We need to have some respect for that temple, right? And I don't mean that in, the, in a diet and exercise kind of way, though those things are both good and I can certainly use more of both in my life, but to be filled with a sense of worship for the Holy Spirit, to be prepared always to recognize how small we are, when we enter the temple of ourselves, when we realize the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we ought to recognize always our humility before him. We need to fill that space with awe and wonder and worship of the Lord. And this man never filled it. He left it empty, and he missed out on a huge opportunity. 
Matthew says he was empty. Now, imagine that for a minute. Imagine this guy's life when he had this unclean spirit before. Whatever he was into, whether it was uh, an addiction or, or sexual immorality or theft or whatever, whatever thing he was stuck in. And now, imagine being freed from that. Being freed from that compulsion and the throes of the enemy of that unclean spirit, and then doing nothing to prevent it from coming back and happening all over again. Imagine the relief of that, and then doing nothing about it to make it stay that way. It's a huge pity that this guy's temple was made useful, but not put to use for God. That he was rescued from pain, but not saved from sin. This is, this is a teenager freaking out over a pregnancy test that turns out to be negative, Missed the bullet on that one. Who then continues to go on and have premarital relations. This is finding your child with the pistol before they pull the trigger, thank God, but then continuing to leave it loaded and unlocked on the top of your shelf. This is swerving to avoid the semi on the highway and then continuing to drink and drive the next night. It is mindless and irresponsible and stupid, but it feels great. Right? This guy's life is objectively better after this demon leaves him, right? His life was bad before, and then the demon departs. It's got to be better. Whatever he's done, his self-improvement course, his 12-step program, whatever it is, to make himself better, but it's not good. And there's a very big difference between better and good. And there can be a tendency to think that, that just because we don't have a demon in our life, that we're doing pretty good. That the, that the absence of an outside evil influence means that we're filled up with something better. That the absence of the devil means relationship with Christ. And that's not necessarily the case. What happens is a guy like this ends up trying to travel some kind of third way in the middle. And we know that Jesus has harsh words for that third way kind of approach. And in Revelation 3, especially, the letter to the church in Laodicea about lukewarmness, there in verse 15, he says, this is the Lord speaking, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Ugh. Now, here's the kicker. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Why are they lukewarm? Because they have gained a sense of self-sufficiency. <clears throat> I don't need anything. I'm good. He goes on to say, and you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is the peril of the self-help ethos. Because it encourages a middle ground between depravity and Christian righteousness that is enacted by some kind of self-improvement and good works. And if there was an Overton window for this sort of thing, it's been getting progressively pushed toward depravity by our culture over the years. But there is no middle ground, biblically. In fact, if you go back to our verses this morning in Luke 11, and just look at the one right before that, 11.23, this is Jesus speaking. He says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. The gospel is black and white. You were either with him or you were against him. We are either helping him to gather in the harvest or we are scattering. There is no middle ground made up of good decisions and kindness and being a good person. And so we can't do things halfway. There's no middle ground. Getting rid of the outside influence toward evil, is not enough because our insides need to be dealt with. For an example of this, we can flip to Luke chapter 12. Just turn one or two pages over to your right, and you'll see in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, 
the Lord tells us, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. And assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. When Jesus talks about waiting and watching for the master's return, he's not talking about making the rounds every 30 minutes, checking in once in a while. He says to wait by the door so you can open it immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching, not hanging out vaguely near the front hallway watching a movie just in case somebody pops his head in, but who watch and wait and see the master approaching so that they can open the door wide and that he could come in immediately when he knocks. And so attentiveness is required in the gospel. And general awareness is not the same thing as watching. A familiarity with Jesus is not the same thing as love for him. Absence of evil intent is not the same thing as faithfulness. Being willing to do what is good is not the same thing as pursuing good. And agreeing that Jesus exists historically is not the same thing as welcoming him into your heart. See, getting rid of bad outside influences is not the same thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit. This man didn't fill himself up with what is good, with the pursuit of righteousness, with the Lord. You guys know Micah 6, verse 8? If you don't, you should memorize this one. It's a simple one. Micah 6, verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That is an active effort, church. There's no bystanding. It's a seeking effort. It's a, a pursuing effort. Now, the world would have us think that we can accomplish basically this same end just by getting rid of that bad influence in our lives. The world would say that we just need to be emptied of, of junk food or, or video games or illicit images or that we just need to ditch our old crummy job or our old crummy car or our old crummy house or our old crummy spouse. <clears throat> we just need to get rid of the bad things in our lives. But, but becoming empty, becoming empty is only half the effort, if that, really. And it's a precarious place to be. We all, we all get emptied in some fashion, right? We are today, right now, six or seven months into this pandemic, we are all emptied of the way our lives used to look, the way our schedules used to be, right? <clears throat> the, the things we spent our time on, the hobbies we used to go to, the places that we went, the commutes to work, uh, the going to school, the amount of laundry that we do, all this stuff has changed. How many of you have found extra time for uh, fixing up things around the house? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too, mostly. <laughs> or picked up a new hobby. I, I see this kind of stuff on, on social media. I have friends who are making awesome use of their time. None of them have kids, by the way. It seems unfair. <laughs> One of them built a new deck off the back of his house. One of them relearned German and considers herself fluent now. She's also learning to trapeze. I don't know how she's doing that exactly at home, but that's what she said. Um, one of them finally figured out his unicycle with only one trip to the ER, and so he's doing well too. <clears throat> People are using their time. There's still 24 hours in the day. And they're getting filled up with something. There's, a, there's an organization called Comscore, and they are a, 
a polling company, essentially. They gather data. They, they're the ones who bother you at dinner time with the marketing phone calls. But they do surveys and, and polls, and then they sell the information to marketers so that the companies know how to target their advertisements and their products better. And so Comscore has just reams of data on you, even if you don't know about them. <clears throat> um, but they, they've been polling people during this pandemic about how their time use has changed. And they, they ask people, firstly, are you spending more time at home? 3% of people said they were not spending more time at home now. <laughs> so that tells you that everybody's spending more time at home than they used to be. And so then the follow-up question, of course, is what are you doing with that time? And they gave them a list of things to choose from. 17% of people said they were taking an online class or course, something educational, which is a good use of time, right? 37% of people who were spending more time at home were spending more time with their pets, which is also good, unless you have a cat. <clears throat> I'm going to get a dirty look from that one. <laughs> Allergies only, I promise, not, not attitude. 42% of people, however, said they were spending their extra time at home buying more stuff online. 59% of people said they were using their extra time at home looking at their smartphone more. And 71% of people said they were using their extra time at home to watch more TV and movies. The demographic that spent by far the most time watching more TV and movies is 55 plus. And the demographic doing the educational classes is 18 to 34, so kids these days, right? <clears throat> Maybe they have a, something going for them. The point is that time hasn't disappeared. It's being filled up with something. And as our schedules have been emptied and then refilled, some people have been very attentive and useful about what they've been refilling those with, and others have simply let whatever walk in the door, mostly Netflix. <clears throat> our emptiness is only ever temporary. We are going to get filled back up. And we see that happen here in verse 26 in our text this morning. He says, then he goes out, the, the unclean spirit goes out, and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. This in spite of the fact that the man had, had taken control of his life. He had gotten better to some extent in a self-help kind of way. And I love that phrase, taking control of your life. We see it all over the place, right? Take charge. You can do it. I have a friend who uh, has embarked on a kind of nutrition program that has really cleared up some stuff for her. But part of the program is that every morning she, she posts on, on social media one of these phrases, like, you can do it. Take charge today. It's all about you. Those kinds of things. And I just find that so vapid and useless. Because there's no, there's no human way for us to control Satan or a demon. That's not for us to do. You know, you can go to Revelation 20. It's not a man who binds him up, right? <clears throat> People don't have control over demons, except for those specific apostles to whom Jesus gave that authority for a time. You know, James says to resist the devil and he'll flee, but he's not talking about getting into a fistfight resistance with him. That's not what he means. He's talking about belonging to Christ who does have the authority. So it's not just about getting rid of the outside influence. We can't always do that ourselves anyway. And this man did not just need to be rid of his outside influence. He didn't just need to be rid of that unclean spirit. He needed something to fill the void, right? He needed the gospel to fill the void. And the gospel is not a self-help program. It is not about making this life easier. It's not about self-help, it's self-sacrifice. And for a good example of that, we can stay in Luke's gospel and turn to chapter 8, so go leftward a couple of pages, or swipe left or whatever it is you've got to do. 
Luke chapter 8, verse 26. I'm going to read a few verses here for contrast. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out, Jesus, when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Remember, demons know Jesus' authority. For it had often seized the man, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. The demons know where they're supposed to be headed. And I said, please not yet. Verse 32, now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. And when those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus. And here's the kicker, church. And found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now listen carefully, verse 38. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him, Jesus, that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This is the difference between this man and the man of verse, or sorry, chapter 11. That man filled himself up with nothing. This man begs Jesus to let him be with him sits at his feet to soak up his teaching. He's desperate to go with him, to be near to him, to listen to his teaching, and to experience his love and grace. He's desperate to follow and not to go it alone. He didn't want self-help. He knew that was useless and fruitless. He wanted to be filled up with Jesus' teaching. And isn't that what should happen to us when we hear the gospel? It's a desire to be filled up with that? Not just that we stop doing bad things, but that not just that we kick out an unclean spirit, so to speak, that's just stopping. That's not the full definition of repentance. And as Pastor Matt has been very careful to teach us over the years, repentance is not just about stopping doing bad things. It is about what? It's about turning around and going the other way. About filling yourself Filling your life with the pursuit of something good instead of something bad. To pursue Christ. It's, it's like how the word for sin means to miss the mark. Hearing the gospel is not supposed to make us stop shooting. We don't put the bow and arrow down. We aim better, right? So that we hit the mark. That's the goal because we're helped by the Holy Spirit who is supposed to inhabit our lives in place of our own uncleanliness. We're not just supposed to be empty. We're supposed to be filled up. The Holy Spirit will fill us up, change the locks, sign his name to the title deed, put up the no vacancy sign, whatever. Now, the world thinks you can accomplish this 
through a kind of imposed morality. But the gospel is not a morality play. It's not about being tidy but unfaithful. It's not about being cleaned up but not righteous. It's not about just being moral. Morality is not enough. Cleaning up is not enough. Picking up at the bootstraps is not enough. You can be moral and still be empty. We can think we're a temple, but actually be one of those Old West movie facades where the building is like three stories high on the outside, but inside there's like three feet of space and it's really just nothing. We can be drawn into a delusion even that we don't even need a savior. That's what the world would like us to do at the hands of these unclean spirits. And that's the self-help ethos. And then we end up worse than before. You see, the Judeo-Christian ethic, any ethic, is useless without faith. Even calling Jesus by his name is not enough. Just familiarity with him is not enough. We have to follow him. Jesus says that 18 times. Follow me. Maybe he means it. To be hearers and doers. Jesus' message is not one of morality alone. It's a faith. Not stopping our sin, but turning away from it and coming back to God. Morality does not deliver a person from Satan or from unclean spirits. The devil is not scared of your morality. He's not scared of religion. For reference, see all other religions. Many of them with a high esteem for morality, but all of them demonic because they lack a Christ-centeredness. Unclean spirits are not afraid of morality. And they will mess with easy targets. So we can't be easy targets like this man was. He ends up with spirits in him more wicked than the first. This is the frat party from hell, literally. Misery loves company. So does an unclean spirit. And there's room now for more than the one. And it's interesting to ask why. why. Why would all these extra spirits need to come into this guy? It's because he's useful to them. Remember how I said he'd been made useful but not put to use when he was cleaned out? Someone else is going to come in and make use of that space. And remember, a demon's goal is to deceive people away from God. What could be more useful for that process than somebody who has self-improved his life, who is a paragon of humanity, who people look at and say, man, he really did it. He changed. I want to be like that. Put me on the Jenny Craig diet. People love that sort of thing, something to aspire to. That is a really useful thing if that person does not also have faith. That's a really fantastic tool for the enemy to distract us from actual saving grace, from actual change. So these eight demons have a lot of work to do. Someone who hears the gospel but then isn't willing to follow Christ is a great asset to make a lot of trouble. Because they can infiltrate. So we can't make ourselves useful, church. The gospel is not a cloak to shroud our sin in. It is new life, right? Transformation. So that the enemy can't dwell there. It says they dwell there. They make their home there. It becomes not just a stopping point on their journey, but their destination. Each of these is more wicked than the first, and they're all cozied up. Home is where the heartache is. For this man, and it ends up for him worse than before. It's bad before the, the unclean spirit leaves, and it's worse after. It's 
couple of verses in 2 Peter that I think are great to read. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them for you. I think they'll also be up on the screen. Thank you. <clears throat> verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, which is such a great phrase, isn't it? The pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If after that, they are again entangled in them and overcome, they fall back into it. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. It had been better for this guy not to have the unclean spirit leave him, basically. Verse 22, But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit, and a, a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Don't return to your vomit, church, as a general rule. Don't make it worse. This is a, a key thing I've had to learn in parenting, is not to make the problem worse. I tell my kids, don't make the problem worse. When something comes up, step one is don't make it worse by, by yelling or, or fighting or running away or continuing in it or lying or whatever. Don't make it worse. The oath of doctors take, right? First, do no harm, right? Put pressure on it to stop the bleeding and then figure out what's going on. But don't just hold the wound. You gotta then do something about it. Don't make it worse and then fix it. And that's only possible, not through the world's means, not through self-help, but through the Holy Spirit, right? Unfortunately, there's no room in a, in a, in a saved Christian's heart for the, for the enemy because the Holy Spirit... Fills us up. Demons can't have ownership over Christians because true believers are bought and paid for with the blood of Christ. They cannot be partially bought by a demon. The Holy Spirit does not sublet to the enemy. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit doesn't cohabitate with demons. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 John 4 and 5. <clears throat> demons, remember though, are not the only source of evil in the world, are they? There could still be sin in the believer's life. <clears throat> Works of the flesh in Galatians 5 and so on. The Holy Spirit there, who indwells us, always provides hope. And we really, in our section today, we have to continue through verse 28, just real quickly as we finish. <clears throat> Back in Luke 11, verses 27 and 28. And it happened as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, it's not enough to hear the word of God. Hearing it is like being freed from that unclean spirit. It's, it's refreshing. There's a, a newness about it, a difference, a change in perspective, but not doing anything with it is like leaving the place empty, swept clean, tidy, but useless. Not because we have to do things to assure our salvation, but because we will do things if we are saved. We will fill ourselves with good things because the spirit already fills us up. The furnishings of our mind and, and our temple will reflect the glory of God. And not only will the Holy Spirit fill up that space, but will make that space unpleasant to unclean spirits, detestable to them. And we're never too far gone for that. Even when we're worse off from the first, we're not beyond the power of God to redeem us. Because Christ has sovereignty and power over everything, even the demons. They must obey him. They know his name and his voice. And they respond to his command. Not because he's in league with Beelzebub, but because he is above them. A demon is not afraid of your morality, church, but he is terrified of Christ. <clears throat> and there is always the ability to call upon that name for redemption. So 
as we think about how we all get emptied at some point in our time or our spirit or our emotions or whatever, we have to be careful what we refill that empty space with. Because we can choose to fill it with a show of religiosity and morality and instead of the Holy Spirit. And, and then we're not just allowing those other spirits to come in. We're welcoming them. We're courting them even, really, to come in. That we sublet to them when the Holy Spirit would say no. We can fill ourselves with, with procedures and with rules and political stances. And very soon we are like the Pharisees. Tremendously religious and completely devoid of faith full of righteous indignation, and yet devoid of any righteousness. Full of information about Scripture, but devoid of trust in the Word. Full of piety and devoid of grace. Just as a man changed by the Holy Spirit becomes unlivable territory for the enemy, so too does sin become unlivable territory for a believer who is truly transformed by the Holy Spirit inside. Sin will become intolerable to us as we seek Christ. I don't want to overlook verse 27 here because Jesus is saying that it's not mere association with him that makes somebody take on his character and salvation. It's not being related to him that matters. It's not even really serving him that matters. It's hearing him and responding to that hearing. No empty gestures. It's keeping his word. Not the moral code of it, but the sense of awe and wonder and humility that we should have as we come before the Lord each and every morning. We need to hear the word of God and keep it. And so in order to hear it, we have to listen. When he calls us out of sin to empty ourselves, not for the purpose of getting rid of the pain of sin, but for the purpose of glorifying him, you will get filled up, church. With what depends on what you're seeking, what we're seeking. And the invitation from Christ to accept him as Lord and Savior and to be filled with that Holy Spirit and have real change, that invitation stands for anyone who would come and ask for it. And even if you already have, it's a good opportunity to remind yourself of the sense of awe that you're supposed to have over our Lord. To be a temple that loves and worships him and is filled with praises for his name all the time and not some empty, echoey chamber. And if you've never accepted that, Now is the time, because he will respond. He will fill you up. Praise God that he has already and continues to, and that this morning we were able to fill this room up with praise for him, because our hearts are already filled with it. I love you, church. The Lord loves you. He wants to fill you up. And it's exciting that as we leave here this morning, we could go share that with other people in spite of the smoke and the pandemic and the masks and everything else that's in the air right now, we get to go share that message of hope. So let's refit that armor that Matt taught us about these last few weeks and go out and do well, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Father, that you are so pristine, so perfect, so holy, that you are worth worshiping, not just with our mouths or lips or with our bodies, but our whole selves. That we should be a temple for your Holy Spirit, God, being full of worship for you. That no enemy may reside here, because you fill us up, Lord. We depend on that spirit for strength. We thank you, Father. Use us, please, in this ongoing battle 
that as we continually empty ourselves and are filled up with you, that we help encourage others to recognize that need in them too, so that they would pursue you and that your name would be greatly glorified in all the earth. Amen.